So think about this. What if you had been born in Saudi Arabia? Yeah, that'd be really cool. That would be really cool. Why would you think that's cool? That's cool. It'd be different. I'm not saying it isn't, but why do you think it would be cool? But then you would be wondering, oh, I would love to be born in the United States because you don't know anything about what goes on on this side of the world. Yeah, I guess. But just imagine it. What if you had been born in Saudi Arabia? What do you think your life would be like? You wear colorful clothes, huh? I don't know. It'd be like a life in Saudi Arabia. I know it's a place, but yeah. I know nothing. Well, it's all the way across the world. Very, very different culture. What do you? So life would be a lot different. Or would or is life everywhere around the world basically the same thing? No, not at all. So we go to church on Sunday, and they go to mosque on Friday. That's the only difference, right? Huh? Mosque is uh, where like um, it's basically a church for Muslims. It's the best shortest way to put it. Yeah. So you know, or life is radically different over there, right? Uh, you know, some I would like to either be a pastor or a suicide bomber. You know, a tomato, tomato, right? No, there's big, big differences between these two cultures. So at some point in the history of the West, these questions have come to the forefront of Christian thinking. And the future will be greatly impacted depending on how we answer these questions. Okay? And it's sad that many Christians who are uh, misguided, they downplay the differences between their religions and other religions. And sometimes this downplay uh, goes so far that people begin to imply or even state openly that many different religions in the end are basically just the same thing. We all worship the same God. We just all have different roads to get there. Uh, This is sad. And this practice of mixing and matching all of these religions is called what? You should have read this in your introduction just last night. Starts with an S. Sin. No. <laughs> it could be sin, but it's not sin. Syncretism. That's called syncretism. So the practice of mixing and matching different religions and putting them together and making them some new thing is called syncretism. And that is a very dangerous thing for us to do. So when syncretism happens, many old school conservative pastors. And theologians, they write all these big, thick books on all the differences between Christianity and all the other religions out there like Islam or Hindu. They're trying to protect Christianity and, and continue to communicate its distinctness and its different from, difference from other religions. But it's really sad to say that most people don't read these big, big thick, giant books, right? They don't read these things. And uh, these books usually make very little impact upon the tidal wave of syncretism, because the average church member, uh, first of all, doesn't read, usually. They don't read. They barely read their Bible. And they have difficulty understanding arguments. They have difficulty understanding the arguments and how the arguments relate to the practical aspects of living our lives. Basically, most American Christians don't know how to think. Uh, We want you guys to know how to think. That's why you guys take a logic class, to be able to know how to think. Okay? Um, So, and most of the time, it really isn't, anyway, just putting all the facts on the board and just going through them one by one. Usually, the thing that's most able to uh, communicate 
and, and argue uh, certain points is the ability to tell a story. Usually you can understand doctrine uh, much more easily when it's conveyed in story form, which is why the Bible isn't just a systematic theology textbook. It isn't just like, here are the facts. God created heaven and earth. God is, uh, you know, God is imminent and transcendent. The, God, the Bible doesn't put it that way. The Bible tells us who he is and, the redemption, and about the redemption of the world through story. And that's where the horse and his boy comes in with this idea of story. So in Horse and His Boy, C.S. Lewis makes a pretty convincing argument against the syncretism of Christianity with any other religion using the religion of Narnia and the religion of Kalorman as types, as examples of these differences. Right? But he doesn't make the arguments uh, by listing all of the arguments just in order and then going through them one by one. No, he does it by talking about the life of the people and by showing how a relationship with the true God forms a joyful and adventurous life and how it forms a beautiful society while the worship of false gods leads to a dull, boring, ugly, and hopeless existence. And so I hope that as you read this book, The Horse and His Boy, that you will be rescued out of some of the foolishness of syncretism that is so prevalent in the church today and in our whole world. And I hope that this book is going to be used by God to open each of your eyes to the beauty that comes with knowing the one true God and what that does to culture. So in The Magician's Nephew... What was the theme? What was the doctrines being propagated in that book? Y'all remember? Creation Creation and the fall. Uh, Lion, witch, and wardrobe. Uh, Redemption. Huh? (coughs) What? Redemption. Redemption, atonement. Yeah. Uh, And in the horse and his boy, we have the doctrine of providence. Providence. Okay, so now we have to remember that Lewis isn't just listing these points of doctrine coldly in plain English in list form. How many of you enjoy reading textbooks at home? I just love it. The first thing I go to when I get to my house is my physical science textbook. How many of you spend your time in your treehouse or wherever it is you read, uh, reading a textbook? Hardly no one. Why is that? It's boring, right? It's boring. Uh, even though everything in a good physical science textbook is true, right? It's true, it's good, it's beautiful. But it's the way it's laid out that makes it boring. So, so I'm glad Lewis doesn't just explain the doctrine of providence in the same way uh, someone would explain physical science, like in a textbook. No, he writes them in story form. He, 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 um, he does with these doctrines what the Bible does with them. He embeds them in the story. And as Lewis had said, he says he finds nothing more exciting than dogmatic theology, provided it was living in its natural habitat. What's that? What's what? Well, the doctrines of pro- uh, providence or creation and fall. Like we're not just talking about these things like a textbook would talk about them. We get to see these things in their natural habitat, actually living out in the world. That's what story does for us. And so that's what C.S. Lewis is so excited about. 
so in The Horse and His Boy, we see Aslan orchestrating all kinds of events behind the scenes. And we see him bringing everything together for his own sovereign purposes. And we see the prophecies of the past, and we see Aslan working to see that all of these prophecies are fulfilled. And they are, and it's really good. All right, so let's look at our main characters in this book. So uh, we have the talking horse, Bree and Wynn, and we have the children that ride them, Shasta and, remember the other person's name? been a while since so I've read this. How many of you have read this before? Erebus. Erebus, yeah. So Shasta was brought up by a poor fisherman named Arshish in the land of Kalorman. And Shasta has always had a strong desire to dwell in the north. What was in the north? Y'all know. Nor- Narnia and Arkenland, right? Those two countries are in the north. And Erebus is a daughter of a Kalorman noble, but she decides to run away from a forced marriage uh, to an obnoxious man. And Bree and Huynh are talking horses from Narnia who were captured when they were foals, when they were babies, and then they were put to work as horses, like the dumb horses who don't talk in Kalorman. Okay? Uh, there's the hermit of the Southern March, who plays a really important role in welcoming the refugees to the northern lands. And he directs Shasta and the, all the other three as they adjust to their new life of freedom in uh, Narnia and to Aslan. And then we have uh, Prince Rabidash of Kalorman, who has been courting Queen Susan. And he gets angry when he thinks that she will reject his proposal for marriage. He gets really angry about that. Okay, So the horse and his boy gives us a good opportunity to talk about the, the layout of the world of Narnia. Now, in many ways, it's a very small world. And like I mentioned before, it's on a circular disc like a CD or a DVD would look. It's not, uh, these countries are not on a round ball They're like our planet is, right? Uh, and Lewis mentions only three countries on this planet with some wilderness areas on the outside of those countries. And which country is farthest north? Narnia. Narnia is farthest north, right. And then just south of that is? We used to have a Narnia map in here. It's gone, though. We had one a couple years ago. It's what? Arkenland, right. Which is a country that is a lot like Narnia. And then what's south of Arkenland? Huh? Well, there's something in between Kalorman and Arkenland. It's a desert, a big desert. And then south of that, we have Kalorman. And, and then far to the west is the land of Telmar, but uh, doesn't show up on any maps. And so Narnia, as a country, they seem very English in a medieval sort of way. And Kalorman is a southern empire with people with dark-complected skin, and they answer to some kind of Islamic power, it seems, right? Uh, and it seems like an, it's, it's an um, an Islamic power that's in the pinnacle of its height and of its glory. Uh, think of the Ottoman-Turkish empire in the late medieval and early modern period. 
You know, we were talking about colorful clothing. Well, the Ottoman Empire creates these beautiful Turkish rugs. Have y'all seen those before? Beautiful, beautiful tapestry, beautiful rugs. Um, so think of Kalorman as, as kind of like that, a Middle Eastern, very Islamic sort of empire, very different than the Christian West. And so not only does Lewis show us the reality of God's providence in this book, he also shows us two very different kinds of civilizations. So in The Horse and His Boy, Lewis is drawing on an ancient literary plot device here. So when King Loon of Arkenland has twin sons, an oracle is pronounced over the two of them. What is an oracle? Like a prophecy. That's right. And the oracle or the prophecy says that Kor will one day save Arkenland from the greatest danger that ever threatened her. And the former Lord Chancellor of Arkenland kidnaps Corn in order to keep this from happening. But what he does to keep the prophecy from happening is exactly what Aslan uses to cause the prophecy to happen. Uh, this is the same kind of thing that happens in the story of Oedipus uh, by Sophocles, which we'll read later on in the year. Uh, a prophecy is told at the birth of the prince of Thebes. This is an Oedipus. And all the attempts of everyone is to avoid the fulfillment of that prophecy. And as they try to avoid the fulfillment of it, they, they're actually being used to fulfill it. And they end up fulfilling it anyway through their acts of trying to avoid it. So Sophocles credits this sort of action to fate. Uh, but in Narnia... Lewis contributes this to God and, and in his providence. And all of that is shown through the person of Aslan. So what is providence? We've all heard this word in Christian circles. What does the word providence mean? We have cities named providence. What's, what's this word mean? Uh, Amelia? God is controlling Yeah, very good. That's right. So yeah, providence is simply God overseeing and controlling all things. Seems simple enough, right? But it's so complicated. And because this happens on such a large scale that it is impossible for any human mind to get around it. So the, you know, the mundane thing that you're doing right now, whatever it is that you're doing, you know, whether you're picking your fingernails or writing or doodling or whatever, all of that is ordained by God's providence to happen. How did he do that? And all of these things somehow, and he's already foreordained that you would do this at this point in time right now, at this point in your life. Can you even, and, and the, he's doing this with 8 billion people in the world. And it's all moving together towards his plan. Now, can we get our human minds to wrap around that sort of concept? No. No, it happens on a scale that's so huge that it's impossible for any human mind to get around it. And not only is the scale of organization so large for us to understand, we also have to deal with uh, the idea of free will in a world where everything, including every part of us, our will, our minds, our intellects, is sovereignly controlled by an all-powerful God. How does God do this? Do you get to choose what you eat for breakfast in the morning? 
Most of y'all probably do. Do you get to choose what shoes you wear in any given day? Or do your, does your parents tell you, put these shoes on today? Well, I'm not talking about school shoes. I'm just talking about any day. Like, let's say you had a, you weren't at school. You have options, right? Probably have several pairs of shoes. So would you say that's your choice? Yes, sure. Well, that's, that's understandable. But it, initially, it's your choice. Do you feel like God is controlling you to make you choose what pair of shoes to wear? Sometimes, I guess, when you go to school. But do you feel that way? Or uh, if you want a snack, let's say you have several options for snacks in the daytime that you go, you go in your kitchen and eat. Like, do you feel like God is like coercing you or forcing you to choose a particular snack when you choose one? No, that's because he isn't. He isn't. Not in the way that we would think. Right? So we have to deal not only, but, but God has still uh, ordained you to eat that snack that, that certain day. How does he do that? Well, that's really one of the greatest questions that we could ask. And the horse and his boy gives us a really good setting in which to talk about it. So when the prophecy was given at the beginning of Corinth's life, it was necessary for that prophecy to be fulfilled. It had to be fulfilled. And at the same time, the characters in the book don't suddenly become puppets as they act out that fulfillment. Uh, and, and the history that Aslan is controlling from backstage, from behind the scenes, the strings he's pulling, uh, it's really, truly a free history. Okay? Now, this, and at the same time, this free history has Aslan behind it, from the smallest menial things to the greatest of things. And now when Aslan intervenes directly, when we actually see him in the story, this is, of course, Aslan's doing as well, right? Uh, but the horse and his boy makes it clear that even when Aslan isn't uh, directly appearing in the story, everything that's going on has Aslan behind the scenes, okay? And so there are a lot of circumstances and situations in which we see Aslan as a character in the story, acting in some direct way, but he's also, in another sense, the author of the entire story. And, and he's not just steering things in some general direction, uh, because the doctrine of providence shows us that uh, Aslan, or Yahweh, uh, controls even the smallest, most minute details of the story. And it's just as Jesus says. He says, He numbers the hairs on our head, and not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of the Lord. And so we can all assume Aslan's presence all throughout the story, all throughout the Chronicles of Narnia. And his dropping in from time to time shouldn't communicate to us that he is not present the rest of the time. Right? Instead, his appearances are there to remind us that he's always present and guiding us. And whenever we do see him, it's a privilege to see him doing his work. And Aslan is always there, just like Yahweh is always here in our lives, even though he's not visible. And this is why we'll hear the hermit say later on that there is no such thing as luck, right? Because uh, how could luck exist in a world, in a personal universe where God controls everything? What is luck? Like, how would you define luck? Chan random chance, and there's there's no one really controlling it. 
uh, like if I, you know, rolled the dice, like we would think that there's no one controlling it other than, you know, how hard I throw it or how it rolls determines what number it lands on. But that's not true. God controls all of that, uh, even though we can't understand how. So what about free will? How does free will enter into this? Right? What is free will? The ability to choose freely, whatever it is you want. Right. So to some extent, we have free will, right? Mm-hmm. Or you define yourself to be a slave and, and a robot that's always being, that's programmed to do certain things? No. No, we have free will. So how is God's providence consistent with free will? Uh, C.S. Lewis shows us very clearly that we are free and morally responsible creatures. And in various places throughout his writings, Lewis made it clear that he did not oppose divine sovereignty and the creature's free will all at the same time. Um, in the, uh, the series called the Space Trilogy, I don't know if any, have any of y'all read any of C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy? The first one. You read the first one? That's, um, oh, what's it called? Uh, I can't uh, think of out it. Of out of the Silent Planet, yeah. That's a good one. In the book right after that, Paralandra, Uh, He makes it very plain that at the highest level, freedom and necessity are the same thing. And as uh, the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon put it, he he never tried to reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility because you never have to reconcile friends, right? So free will and God's sovereignty are not at odds with each other, but, but they are a mystery as to how they work together. But indeed, they do work together. And we aren't capable of doing all the necessary calculations in order to show how they work together, but they do, in fact, work together. And the best way to make this clear is to show how it works, not by just writing everything on the board, cold, plain facts, but to put it in a story. That's the best way to understand it. And as we read through The Horse and His Boy, we will have no sense at all that Shasta is being controlled like a puppet on a string. Uh, but at the same time, everything he does, everything uh, and everything he feels fits in with the fulfillment of the prophecy, and it contributes to the fulfillment of the prophecy. He has this longing to go to the north, and he doesn't know why. He doesn't even know what's up there. And the solution to what seems like a struggle between sovereignty and free will uh, can't be found by just listing all the logical proofs on the board but it can only be found through the story. And this is why folks who deny either human freedom or divine sovereignty in order to make them consistent with one another uh, actually have the same problem. It's the same issue. That's the problem of not understanding the story. Okay, And the writings of C.S. Lewis is so compelling that his books continue to be bestsellers even though he died in the 60s. Imagine that. What, kind of, what other author has that sort of impact on a society where he, besides like Tolkien, besides the other big, big writers, but Lewis died in the 60s. He died the same day JFK died. He was assassinated. Right? Uh, the same day. Mm-hmm. That's why C.S. Lewis's death like, didn't make the news that day because JFK's assassination was way bigger news at the time. But, I mean, how long ago was that? Wait, 60s? That was, 62. what, 60 years ago? Somewhat? Wait, he got assassinated too? No, he did not get assassinated, no. 
he died of natural causes the same day JFK got assassinated. Yeah. No, no, I, it did kind of sound like that. No. So his books are still bestsellers. They're still selling. So this means that, uh, that there are some people who want to be like Lewis as a writer, as a person. Uh, but these people, these scholars uh, who imitate Lewis and revere Lewis, uh, they have also been influenced by some of the changing cultural fads uh, that we deal with today. And they have to deal with some of the things that Lewis wrote down that they would not consider these days politically correct. Right? And so what are some of these politically incorrect things that Lewis says in Horse and His Boy? Well, the way Lewis writes about Kalorman is one of those things. So in the Chronicles of Narnia, and uh, particularly in The Horse and His Boy, we have a contrast between two completely different civilizations and cultures. Okay? And several um, examples of the modern perception of Lewis's thoughts on different cultures can be found amongst different writers and scholars these days. Uh, one example that one particular scholar writes about, he deals with Lewis's so-called sexism. Right? And that's not what you think. Sexism basically uh, is the idea that, um, that uh, men are better than women, men are more fit than women, men are more uh, just all around better human beings than women. And so these scholars think that Lewis is a sexist. Uh, and one scholar even goes as far as to apologize for Lewis's historic Christian understanding of the relationship of men and women and boys and girls. And he says that Lewis at the time was growing in this area, like he wasn't there yet on this issue, right? Um, so that's one. Uh, another example is when uh, another scholar makes a comment on Kalorman saying this, quote, like many Englishmen of this era, Lewis was unconsciously unsympathetic to things and people that are Middle Eastern. That Lewis opts into this cultural blindness is regrettable, end quote. So the reason this scholar says this certain thing is because it's clear that Kalorman is a Middle Eastern civilization. And C.S. Lewis is very clearly unsympathetic to it. Uh, but it wasn't an, he wasn't unconscious about it. It's not like he didn't know what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, because he understood that all cultures are inherently religious. They're religious to the core. Every single culture in the world is religious. And the tyrannical and despotic nature of Kalorman was due to their worship of a demon god. The who, anybody remember the name of the demon god? Or Tash, the inexorable Tash. You know. Uh, so culture stems from religion. And culture stems from who or what you worship. Okay? You can't escape that. We cannot escape it. And C.S. Lew, Lewis knew, <coughs> he knew that. And he put this truth on display in his books on purpose. Okay? And now he's not a mindless propagandist either. He acknowledges that Kalorman has accomplished some worthwhile things. But in the end, uh, he asserts that Arkenland and Narnian culture is superior to the culture of Kalorman. He says that. Narnian culture is better than Kalorman culture. 
What is he in essence saying in real life? English culture is better than Turkish culture. Now, can y'all, can y'all begin to see how this sounds politically incorrect? Why is that? What does our culture teach? Every culture can be as good. Every culture has good aspects about it. It's the idea of multiculturalism. Okay? The multiculturalism. Lewis is, uh, is attacking the sacred cow of multiculturalism. And so, and now think about this though. Lewis did not treat the Kalorman people like they were themselves demons, being entirely evil. He didn't treat them like they were orcs, you know, just straight from a demon. But he does treat them like they are a fallen culture, which they are. And he treats them as if they are a culture that worships a false god, because they do. So, therefore, given the premises of their religion, there is no real salvation. There's no salvation found in Kalorman culture. And because of that, their culture is going to be marked by cruelty. It's going to be marked by sensuality. It's going to be marked by luxury. And it's going to be marked by oppression and despotism with, with a, you know, one class utterly ruling and oppressing a different class. Okay. Now, there are Kalormans that escape this culture, and they escape it by running to Aslan. And see, the, all, the issue is always centered on worship. See, Nardians, are Nardians as people any better than Kalormans individually? No. Nardians are sinners just like Kalormans are sinners. But because of who they worship, salvation is possible for them. Now, of course, tyranny is also possible in Narnia, and we've seen that. Who's an example of a, a tyrannical character in Narnia? Uh. The White Witch, right. Uh, or uh, that was in the past. What's another one that was going to happen in the future from this book? Well, in, from this book? Yeah. Oh. I kind of read them out of order. Yeah. Miraz. Remember him? Yeah. So there are tyrants in Narnia. But because Aslan is there, salvation is possible. And salvation is certain. And because of the hope of salvation and redemption, Lewis greatly prefers Narnia or England, to Kalorman, right? Or Turkish. Uh, He greatly, because of that, he greatly prefers an English breakfast over a Turkish one, right? And so, but Lewis isn't totally blind to any of the good things that Kalorman did. Uh, He says that he prefers Kalorman storytelling over the English way of essay writing. So in all of this, it is clear that Lewis is writing as a Christian, He's writing as a Christian. And because he is a Christian, he believes that Christian expressions of culture are right and good. And demonic expressions of culture are wrong. But also, because he's a Christian, he is fair-minded about it. And at the end of the day, Christendom and its culture is superior to any other culture because the God of the people of Christendom is superior to all other gods. In 50 years from now, that might get me put in jail for saying that. But it's true. There are some cultures that are superior to other cultures. And it's not because of those people in the cultures, because we're all sinners. It's because of who they worship. Because the God of the Bible is superior to every other God 
a culture that uh, that worships that God will automatically be better than a culture that doesn't. Okay, and you guys have to understand that, uh, especially as you're you're uh, navigating. You're going to be navigating through the world, you know, in the next few years or so, right? Especially, you'll have to understand this when you read a commentary on C.S. Lewis from scholars who have swallowed modern quote multicultural assumptions. Okay? Now we have to remember, like I said before, that the goodness of the culture of Christendom is all of grace. It's by grace. That means none of us deserve the Christian culture that we're working to get. Right? No one deserved it. When, there was, when Christendom was prevalent uh, in the world, no one deserved it. And no one earned any of it. It's all by grace. And there's nothing for us to boast about in ourselves. In fact, recognition of this need for humility is one of the features of cultures that have been shaped by right worship, by the, worshiping the correct God. So in our world, one of the civilizations that Lewis was using for his narrative model was the monarchies of Christendom, uh, particularly the English monarchy of the medieval period. So Lewis holds that up as something noble and admirable. And the, the principles of chivalry are all through these books. The entire Chronicles of Narnia have the principles of chivalry in it. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, Lewis, it's very clear to me that Lewis rejected modernity as a worldview. Y'all know what I mean when I say modernity? Like, like modern culture. He rejects modern culture as a worldview. Now, does that mean that he rejects uh, all of the wonderful technology that you know that really uh, that modernity has today because of Christian cultures of the past, like the toilet in the house? I know we take that for granted. Do you think Lewis rejects indoor plumbing? No, no of course not. Of course not. But he does reject modernity as a worldview, uh, and he sought to instill an appreciation for that world through his books. And at the same time, the greatest historical threat to Christendom down through the ages has been Islam. Okay, So the presence of Islam on Europe's southern borders has been an Islamic presence. And more than once it was believed that Europe was going to lose to Islam. Islam was going to invade Europe. And looking at some elements of the situation now in the world, some people still believe that. And so Kalorman in Lewis's mind, was a thinly veiled disguise of uh, the same thing, of Islam. And Lewis was warning us. He was warning us. He was essentially saying that multiculturalism is a lie. Quick review. What is multiculturalism again? The, where, like, all the cultures have, like, the same... Like, they, they're all basically the same. They're equally good. They, they all have good things in them. And we can all learn from each other. Different cultures. We can all learn from each other's cultures. And, and we shouldn't be quick to put down one culture and elevate another one. That, according to C.S. Lewis and according to the Bible, is a lie. And the Narnia books are a good way to get that lie out of our systems. and Because only Jesus can build a culture worth having, right? And one day we're going to have it. And it will be as the waters cover the sea. And I'm certainly looking forward to that day, if I'm alive to see it. Any questions, comments? This is stuff you already know. Uh, I guess. 
kind of. Hopefully you'll see it in a, in a new and different light as you read A Horse and His Boy. You'll see the contrast between these two different cultures. And you'll see the attitudes and the dispositions of the people, how they'll be so different, like the Kalorman people versus the Narnian people. Like The Narnian people were, uh, as you'll read, they were free and happy. And as they were walking along the streets of Kalorman, they were... Uh, they weren't like shriveled up and afraid that someone you know, riding a horse above them was going to whip them into submission. No, they were happy. They were free. Uh, they were civil. Versus the Kalorman people, especially the commoners, they were always afraid that the elites would, uh, they would you know, step in their way or something. What would happen if you stepped in the way of a, like a Kalorman guard? You get beat up. Yeah, you'll get whipped. You'll get put down. Those are, those are not coincidences that these two cultures are different. It all goes down to the gods they worship. So I hope you remember that as you read these books.